calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Well, my story sort of actually begins as an orphan in the Bronx, New York. Hello, I'm Sybil Patry, and this is my charter story from CFA Institute. I'm so delighted to be part of this podcast and introduce you to CFA charter holders from all over the world. In this episode, we'll meet Michael Hakaram, CFA, founder and CIO of Empowered Portfolios and managing partner of Investor Empowerment at Glenwood Financial Partners in North Carolina. Michael is also an author, speaker, and mentor, and has traveled across the U.S. speaking on topics such as portfolio management, fintech tools, and career management. But first, let's go to where it all began. What was early childhood like for you? My mother, I think, was about 16 years old, so it was kind of one of those closed adoptions. But the uh, more interesting is that my parents, who met in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam conflict, decided to adopt a baby in New York City. And it's interesting because my mother was born in Eden, North Carolina, and my dad, my adoptive father, was actually born in Haifa, Israel. So right away, I was sort of born into a lot of diversity in terms of religion and geography and just really a philosophy on life. But from there, uh, we lived in New York for a little bit of while, but then we moved to Williamsburg, Virginia, which is where I uh, grew up. All my uh, growing up years were in the Williamsburg area, which was instrumental because I was surrounded by military, healthcare, and first responders. And that really laid the groundwork for sort of just learning about life, uh, helping people, uh, really thinking about others. And my interest in finance, which was also born in the Williamsburg area, some, some military folks that we knew um, actually gave me my first book uh, called The Stock Market for Kids back in like 1979, I think, something like that. So it was kind of neat the way it all kind of married together. Did you always know you wanted to be in finance? It's usually not on people's lists of dream jobs when they're growing up. No, I mean, it was funny because uh, I had like a loan sharking business when I was a kid called Speedy Rabbit Loans. <laughs> when I was loaning my mother money <laughs> and charge her extraordinary rates. So finance for me, you know, I got that stock market for kids book when I was about eight years old. And I remember going, what is this S&P 500 thing? And then my high school senior research paper was on systemic and unsystematic risks. And finance, for me, you could really marry marketing and psychology and physics and, of course, finance and marketing and management, all those things, just because I was always intellectually curious and finance, for me, always brought all of those different, call it multidisciplinary way of looking at things. Ultimately, it's people and their emotions that make things really interesting in the financial world. And so, yeah, I never deviated from that. And I, I just feel really blessed in the things I get to do, you know, 30 years later. After high school, Michael went to James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia 
And that's where really finance really took off for me and I got to do some great research with Dr. Michael Berry, who was doing research for the Dreamin' Foundation, and that was a lot about contrarian investments, uh, behavioral finance, and got to do some research with folks like Richard Thaler and Bob Schiller and Nelson Woodard and some other, other folks in that area. So important time for sure. That sounds like a great opportunity. Behavioral finance and the psychology of investing are areas of such intense insights. Behavior kind of drives everything in a way. College years are a formative time in many people's lives. But I want to move on to a really impactful story about the squeegee man. Growing up in New York City, I also know a thing or two about the squeegee man. Let's call it. It was actually uh, after my freshman year in college, we were uh, driving up from Virginia to New York City, and we were going to drop off a friend at Grand Central Station. And... <laughs> Short story is, is the car got towed and they tow it down to the docks down there. And so we had to walk all the way from Grand Central Station and we ended up going through Hell's Kitchen and it was getting darker and getting scarier. You could just imagine. And so back then in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, they still had squeegee men and squeegee men were gentlemen, let's call them, that will... Uh, you know, squeegee your car windshield and they expect something in return. So anyway, we're going through Hell's Kitchen. It's getting dark, kind of upset about the whole situation. And this gentleman comes up to us and says, you know, can you spare some some money? And I just was like, man, not only do I not have money, this is my car got towed. I'm supposed to be at my grandparents' house, all this kind of stuff. And this squeegee man who had so much less than we did, he reached in his pocket and he pulled out two quarters because back then it had something called a payphone. So he reached in his pocket. He gave me two quarters. He pointed us in a shorter direction to get down to where we need to get to get the, the car back. And he said, you know, have a blessed rest of your night. And for that, that for me was just an amazing influence. And again, this was 1990, 1991, something like that. And I always love to tell that story for so many different reasons, as you can imagine. It's just always had a huge influence on me. What would you say is the biggest thing you learned from that experience? Get out there, talk to people, see people, experience things with people that are different than you. Different color, different geography, different culture, different beliefs. Sounds a lot like what's going on right now with diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. I also believe that having those conversations are so important to understand people and how to make lasting changes in our society. So tell me, what happened next? I call myself fortunate here. It, it's amazing because, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get type of thing. So I was working hard in school, of course, and then right out of school, graduated. And my big job after being a finance econ major and all of that, I actually went to sweep up cigarette butts at a friend's. Uh, they owned a store near Bush Gardens in Virginia, um, Ed's Miller Mart. And uh, I was out there with this college degree, so smart, and I'm out there sweeping cigarette butts, right? But um, so I was just looking for a job. It was kind of a tough economy at the time, early 90s. And so anyway, I actually answered an ad in the paper and for a local savings and loan, it's called Tidemark Bank. If you remember that time period, it was at the end of the savings and loan crisis. 
And so luckily they were just looking for a junior person. And so I went, I met a wonderful gentleman named Dennis Webb and he was a real go-getter. He was the vice president of investments at this savings and loan. And they were doing some really interesting things in fixed income, asset liability management, all that. And so I ended up getting the position. I actually had my first Bloomberg back in 1993, this is. And uh, so Dennis Webb was studying for this thing called the CFA. And so I learned about it first really from him. And I said, hey, I looked at the curriculum and I said, this is the, the best people in the investment industry will have this designation. And I also loved the emphasis on ethics. Because again, my background with healthcare, military, first responders, that was important to me. You know, integrity, you know, choosing the sometimes harder right over the easier wrong. I mean, that's just how I grew up. And so that the CFA curriculum was perfect and I was couldn't have been more excited to take it on. So for everyone that has listened to my story, this is crazy similar right here. Working at a convenience store after graduating with a finance degree, and then getting into a local savings bank. I can totally relate to this, Michael. So this is exciting. The job sounds great. The CFA exam is a big undertaking. How did you prepare? So the experience of taking the exam and preparing was, it involves a lot of people. It takes a village, right? I mean, a lot of times it, it's taking time away from other folks, but for me, I knew that, again, going back to the, the healthcare military, sports, all those things was taking on a challenge because at the time, uh, I often had to be at work at 6 a.m. and often not get off until 6 p.m. or expected that you would be there on weekends and this sort of thing. It's very competitive. And I was hitting the ground rolling just in terms of at the time having to pass a lot of different securities exams that are on sort of the broker dealer side of things. And then also, having to find time to study for the CFA exam. And, and you know that old saying, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. So I would say that was the mindset was, look, there's time to sleep some other time. And I would literally go over to University of Richmond Law Library was sort of my choice of where to study. And sometimes go out in the parking lot and sleep and then find myself waking up at like three in the morning. Like what, I forgot to wake up. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to take a little nap. But anyway, I think just at the time you've got, for me, I had a lot of energy still uh, being in my, at that time, I guess mid-20s and just really getting after it. You know, again, time to sleep another time. And it, it was rigorous. And I remember some of those very emotional times where at the time they would send you a letter in the mail. And again, this is in the mid-90s now at this point. And sometimes that mail delivery, it was really where I worked was very competitive. And there were a lot of people that were going after their CFA designation. And of course, everyone knew when the letters were coming out and sometimes yours would come later and you're like, oh no, what does this mean? And when I would get that letter, it would always go to my office and I would take it down to this little quiet place overlooking the James River and just slowly open it and see if it was going to say congratulations or Luckily, that's all I got to see. I didn't get to see the other, but it certainly was uh, nerve wracking. And it was interesting. It was so competitive where we were too. I remember another associate had told my boss that I did not pass because the letter had not come. This was uh, after the second level. So when I went to go see him 
to request because they would reimburse you if you passed. So when I went to go make my request, he goes, okay, I want you to do better next time. I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, I'm going on to level three. I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, oh, so-and-so told me you didn't pass. I'm like, oh, well, they were wrong. First of all, I can't believe people were that intensely competitive. I know people say finance is intense, but I personally found a lot more camaraderie than competition. So you passed level two, and then it was time to study for level three. So it just happened. You know, I, I told you that my adoptive father was from Israel. And so his mom, you know, my adoptive grandmother, I guess, still lives in Israel in a little village. And he asked me if I would go with him to visit because she was not of good health. And it was about three weeks before I had to take level three. And I was like, I don't know if I can go, you know, 10 days or 12 days overseas into Israel. And uh, it was funny because I took tapes and I would, you know, every night the way I, cause I didn't have time to study during the day and all that. We were visiting and traveling around. We went into Jordan and Egypt and other places. And my grandmother's house upstairs where we were sleeping was just absolutely freezing. And it was literally in a valley. There's like coyotes are howling and it's, it's really cold. But I would put my old headphones on and listen to study tapes as I would fall asleep, sit there freezing. And uh, that's how I study. Like my last uh, bulk of the right at the end before I would go take level three is how I was studying on this big trip. But it was so funny at the end because by the end, you know, my dad didn't want to say anything to my grandmother about how cold it was because each morning we would get up and be like, yeah, my teeth were chattering and all that kind of thing. And then finally at the end, we finally had the guts to say something to her. And she goes, oh, I have space heaters. Did y'all need a space heater? Like at the end, like 10, at the end of the, <laughs> all that time. I mean, I'm literally up there, can barely hear the tapes because my teeth are chattering. But that's how I sort of finished the studying for level three. But uh, somehow it worked. I wouldn't recommend that strategy, but. <laughs> okay, I'm not sure anyone would recommend that strategy. So, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just kind of crazy, but opening that last letter, I did finally receive the designation in uh, 1998, and it was an amazing feeling, but also very emotional. And of course, everyone around you, a very emotional thing too. So it was it was awesome though in the end. It is a big achievement, but it took a lot of effort. You've been in the trenches for a while now. Looking back, would you say it was worth it? The CFA designation is one of the most valuable things I have ever done. I will say that I have gotten lots of influences from things that have nothing to do with the CFA curriculum. But at the end of the day, the CFA, my fellow CFAs, I guess, because I've been to numerous CFA Institute annual conferences. You know, the last CFA conference I went to was in Philly in 2017. And man, it's just one of my favorite things to do is that annual conference. It's just nothing better than that. Just the amazing people that I've gotten to collaborate with, to see, to work with, simply because they see that those three letters behind your name. I mean, there are a lot of, I don't want to call them false designations necessarily, but the, our finance industry tends to create designations just for the sake of creating designations. I mean, it just, it is what it is. So that means there's just a few that are really rigorous and in my mind, just a tremendous value and I think that is recognized with the CFA designation so just having those letters behind your name opens a lot of doors a lot of conversations both ways people seeking you and your ability to seek them 
some of the people that I've gotten to meet because of the CFA Institute, you know, John Bogle, Richard Thaler, uh, Jean Brunel, Charlie Ellis. I mean, I, I got to spend, I know he's been around a long time now and he may not be as familiar, but look up Charlie Ellis and I got to sit with him in person for about an hour during the Future of Finance series of things. And then after that, we connected, spoke over the phone numerous times. I mean, it was just an amazing thing. And I think because I had the CFA behind my name, it just, it that door opened really wide. So you're a father. Sometimes parents who are passionate about their careers can really push their kids to follow in their footsteps. Did you actively encourage your children to pursue finance? So I have three boys. I have one that's now just turned 19 uh, as a freshman in college. I have one that's a junior, getting ready to turn 17 in a couple months, and then one 15 months younger than him who's a freshman in high school. It's so funny because I really get passionate and talk fast, and really when my boys ask me something, man, they're like, Dad, all I wanted to know was you know one little thing. But I've really been amazed, especially as they've been maturing, that they all have their own investments that are all theirs. They all very much are interested in finance, if for no other reason, just for their to be educated investors on their own. But they are very, uh, very interested in it. And I couldn't be more proud when um, I hear them repeat back some things. If we just kind of walk around like, what's network, you know, define network, or what is uh, reward to risk, or all these different things and I and I love to teach just a quick example is I taught them about reward and risk during Big Cat Week on the Discovery Channel, right? So every species does this inherently. It's it's just part of the way that you think. And so imagine a lion, a hungry lion looking over this raging river full of crocodiles and over in that other pasture are the wildebeest, right? They're at reward. And there's certainly a number of risks that that lion is calculating, getting through that river, crocodiles, but also going hungry or whatever that may be. And so, you know, we we all do that. We all have to contemplate sort of themes or theories or frameworks. And rewarded risk is one of the most important ones. And so when I hear my boys repeat those things back to me, it's, it's very gratifying. I mean, I think people can really empower themselves, be very educated, investors in their own right. Every single person, no matter your interest, should do it. I mean, it's really that important. Do you have any lessons learned or bits of wisdom you'd like to share with young professionals? The main thing I would like to share is to learn to think and to dare to be different and to innovate. I would say that, you know, there's something called the Edelman trust barometer and finance is only higher than social media in the latest Edelman trust barometer. And it's disappointing because, you know, there are wolves on Wall Street, Main Street, and probably your street. And and that's true in lots of industries. But, you know, it's one thing if your auto mechanic kind of takes advantage of you. It's another when you're trying to send your children to college or to fund retirement or to take on other significant things. And what I mean by that is I've met just some unbelievable, wonderful folks, but I know that in my journey, really trying to evangelize uh, a certain approach in private wealth management, that so much of the culture, and it's even been called religion by other CFAs in our conversations, is that it's, you know, you sort of, you manufacture, mass distribute, and retrofit things to fit for scale. 
right, in the name of scale. And with all that's going on in the technology world, you know, along the way, and I've been involved, I even built and own my own proprietary software. Along the way, I've noticed that sometimes great software that had such an opportunity to really customize and personalize things for investors, it sort of got hijacked by a distribution model, you know, and I think that that for me says, hey, there's still a lot of opportunity no matter how many CFAs there are or how much finance or what type of companies are in finance, I think anyone starting out today, you have every opportunity to pave a path that will be unique and differentiated. And there are a lot of problems still to solve, which means there's a lot of opportunity to innovate and to add value. And I would just encourage anyone uh, looking at the CFA curriculum and the designation and what it can do for you is the sky's the limit. And I would say blazing new paths is what I would encourage people to do. Uh, there's there's already enough people falling in line with the old manufacturer mass distribute, in my opinion. Can you elaborate on that? You know, one of the major influences where I thought there would be a lot more done here was um, Way back in 1995, an investment in a company called Signet Bank. There were two consultants there, Rich Fairbank and Nigel Morris. They ended up uh, founding Capital One. And Capital One was based on the power of information and one-to-one -one marketing. And of course, they were marketing credit cards. But I was really hopeful that that type of power could be translated into really helping more people you know, at scale. And I, and I think the same way that Starbucks delivers coffee at scale, Chipotle burritos at scale, you know, the same thing could be done. So I know a lot of people worry that Apple or Google or Amazon will get into our business. You had that little trend of robo advisors, you know, replacing humans. I don't think that will happen. I mean, I think at the end of the day, at least from where I stand, it's still a relationship business. It's very emotional. And I don't know that robots or, you know, automation can replace that. At least I hope, hope not. I do think automation will have its place to replace humans in certain jobs. But I also agree that it's about relationships and human connections at the end of the day. I think for me, back in June of 2014, I came to a major crossroads in a path professionally. And, you know, it's like, what is, what is are your beliefs, what are you willing to pay or what are you willing to give up or what will it cost you? Like I said before, learning from the military is actually part of a West Point cadet prayer, which is choose the harder right over the easier wrong. And I think that no matter what industry you're in, that's a challenge to fight sort of the product business centric way of doing things versus maybe in your mind, you know something maybe should be done differently and maybe it's not illegal or maybe it's not quote unquote unethical, but you know in your heart that it's not necessarily the right thing to do. And I think, you know, for me, that was a challenge and that sort of set me off on, uh, as I was building software for a year, I was really going around and, and meeting with a lot of fellow CFAs and other people. And what they would say to me was, I love what you're saying. I believe everything you're saying, but to go out and be an entrepreneur to be different is really tough. <laughs> and like, I understand that. I know that. I know you need health care for your family and, you know, to leave a large institution would be really difficult. But I guess we sort of have one life to live on this earth. And I feel like 
you're not going to look back and probably wish that you had made more money or that you, I mean, maybe you will, but I know it's cliche. I think there's even a, a book, you know, sort of a purpose driven life. And I just think that the gratitude that I receive from helping, whether it's special needs children that have trusts that are set up from unfortunate circumstances, or say there's a widow who, who just lost her husband and she hasn't even gone into his closet yet, right? To donate his suits or something like that. And, but just to, to use your knowledge and understanding to really help people who are going through a stressful situation and money and markets are stressful, you know, and there are a lot of traps. And I would just say, uh, you know, that for me, again, is just a way to encourage someone to think about what they're going to do and don't always go for the, <laughs> the big money necessarily. Everyone I know, or not everyone I know, but a lot of people I know that have done that, they're not very happy or satisfied in their career and in their their lives. They probably have a nice watch and nice cars, but at the end of the day, it's not ultimately what's rewarding. And for everyone, you have to find your own balance of that, I would say. And that's the same thing I tell my my three boys to think about what they're you know going to do in life. And it's first, love what you do and, and have purpose and have a passion. I could not agree more, Michael. Purpose is what should drive everyone. Thank you so much for sharing yours. If you're enjoying My Charter Story, I encourage you to go to the platform you're listening to it on and leave us a review. It helps others find the podcast. Thank you and see you next time.